Hi, welcome back. We're doing Back Porch Stories. This is Chuck Stead, and I'm, I'm happy to have you back and to hear some more stuff here from these stories from my growing up years in the village of Hilburn in New York. If you want a copy of the book, you can actually order it at ramaposhop.com. Ramaposhop.com. Back Porch Stories by Chuck Stead. Yeah, they have them. They have plenty of copies, believe me. And this story is the second one I'm reading. It's um, from the beginning of the book. And in our first installment, we talked about my grandfather. Well, we're still talking about him. And I mentioned he had these stories that he would tell me in the front room of the house on 2nd Street. And this is the story he told me. He called it The Story of the Cursed Arm. It's mostly in his voice. My father, he took off. He took off when I was, oh, maybe eight years old. Left mother and me to take care of ourselves. So we went down to Patterson. Now, that's a town in Jersey, you know. The year was, oh, maybe 1889. We went down there because she found herself a job working in in one of them big houses for a rich family. She worked in the kitchen, mostly. It paid for her room and board, but there was no place for a boy in that rich house, so she put me in a big old three-story orphanage. Now, I was no orphan, but she couldn't keep me with her. So off to the orphanage I go. She would come by on Saturday for a visit with me. Now, I got along all right with the other boys, but the keepers of the place, they had a pretty mean spirit. If you broke the rules, they'd tan your hide. Many's the time I was spanked for my ways. And I tell you, I didn't take much at all to earn a spanking. No, if you cut up, or if you didn't do your lessons, or your chores, or or if you cursed, oh, and just what a curse was, well, it changed all the time. Sometimes it was a real mean, low, dirty word, and sometimes it was something simple, like darn it. Imagine darn it being a curse. Well, sure was easy to get took up your backside for a curse in that place. Well, sir, one night in the winter... Just as cold as any you'd find up here in North Country is when this business of the cursed arm all began. I was down in the shower with my buddy Crab Legs. I called him that because his legs were skinny, you know, like a crab. And the shower was down in the basement. It was right next to a furnace. In those days, they burned coal in in this big old furnace. On this night, that furnace was going fierce. It was cherry red hot. It, it gets cherry red when it burns so hot that the iron starts to turn red. And that furnace was, was cherry on that night. Well, sir, they used to make us boys take showers two at a time to save up on the water. Crab legs, he gets out of the shower and he starts to cut up. He dried himself off standing next to the furnace and then he wraps up his towel and he whips it at me when I come out of the shower. But I was ready for him. I jumped. Trouble is, I, I slipped on my right arm and, and, and it touched the furnace door. It was only for a second, but it felt like I was on fire. I hollered and I cursed so bad, I was sure when they got a hold of me, I had earned myself a year's worth of spanking. But no, they was too shocked by the looks of the burn on my arm to pay attention to my cursing. A blister, it swelled right up from my hand to my elbow. And they sent for the doctor. And, and well, they got word he couldn't come until morning because of the snowstorm and all. Now, they was afraid that I might try to run off, you know, because I heard them talking about how they were going to have to cut off my arm. 
You see, in those days, well, doctors weren't as good at healing things. And so, you know, they got it in their heads that I, I might try to run off because they wanted to take off my arm. That's why they took my clothes from me and they locked me in a room on the third floor. Now, I sat there in that room, naked as a jaybird, and I thought, burn or no burn, I still felt pretty attached to my arm. So I saw no reason to have it cut off. So I, I, I tried to, to get out. I tied a few bed sheets together, and, and I flung them out the window. Only got down as far as the second floor. So I aimed for a nice-looking bush, and I dropped into it. It was all snowy. Well, I bounced around a bit, and I tore open that damn blister. And that hurt some. So I grabbed my arm, and I run off into the streets of Patterson, hiding in the alleyways, dodging folks that were out there, and I was cold. I mean, I was naked. And for me, it seemed like anything was better than getting my arm cut off with that damn blister. Well, sir, pretty soon I, I couldn't feel much of anything at all. And, and I come to believe I was starting to warm up. I, I knew that weren't possible. So I figured my brain had froze and it made me stupid. So I ran up to the very next front porch and I banged on the door. And a big man with black olive eyes, he opens the door he takes one look at my arm, and he grabs me. And he brings me down into his cellar. And there I saw great sides of beef and legs of lamb hanging on meat hooks and dripping blood into sheets of sawdust. I figured it was all over for me then. But no, the, the man sets me into some dry blankets, and he wraps raw meat around my arm. And his wife, she comes in and makes me, she makes me drink warm coffee with liquor in it. I'd never had liquor before in my life. But then again, I never run naked in the streets before, especially on a winter night. By and by, the meat around my arm turns a funny blue color. The man, he took it off, and, and he wraps a new piece around the blister, which starts to go down. Come morning, he'd gone through three pieces of meat, and, and my blister was gone. Had a fine-looking scar, though, to brag over. Now, you see, that man, he was a Blackfoot Indian. And he worked as a, as a meat packer. And seeing as how he was an Indian, he knew all kinds of special healing ways. He told me the raw meat soaked up the poison in the burn. And it did. Well, sir, I didn't go back to that orphanage. No, I just stayed there with the man and his wife. I worked for them, delivering meat for a couple of years. I never knew where my mother was staying, so I couldn't go and see her. The orphanage folks... They told her I died of a disease and they had to burn what was left of me in the furnace. So she gave up on ever seeing me again. Until one day, when I was, I was making a delivery at the back of a big house on the rich side of town, the door opened and there stood my mother. She said, you are my son. And I said, damned if I ain't. Well, sir. We threw our belongings together. We got out of Patterson, New Jersey for good. Eventually, we come to live here in the village of Hilburn. And over the years, I've had more than one accident with this right arm of mine. That's why I say it's cursed. When I went to work in the foundry, where they melt down pig iron and pour hot steel into the molds, I got burnt, just about in the same place on my arm. A drop of hot steel felt just like liquid fire fell on my arm and a blister bubbled right up out of my skin. I just sent for some raw meat. I healed myself. Another time, I managed to get my arm partway crushed, but I knew it would come back because even though it was cursed, it always got healed. When Pop's dad told this story, 
He would roll up his sleeve and show me where the blister had been. There were faint lines along his arm, from the wrist to the elbow. I would touch them and ask if he felt anything. He would say, only when I laugh, and then he would laugh. Although he would tell the whole story about his arm, he never got around to explaining how his fingers were lost. Years later, I discovered it happened at the Ramapo Ironworks in the late 1920s. He was injured, and he received a settlement that included some furniture. I'm actually writing this story at the desk he received for the loss of his fingers. His eyes were black olive eyes. I just <laughs> You can see that as soon as you said it. You could see what the eyes <laughs> A little scary. Them damn black olive eyes. Yeah, yeah. How about that? So he learned how to care for a wound from from the yep. Native Americans. Yep, yep. That was probably his first uh his first true experience with uh, local natives and in fact that wasn't local Ramapos per se, but could have been. Uh, they were down in Patterson, and apparently he was with them for a couple of years, for more than two years. Uh, and what what charms me so much about that story is he lived in Patterson for more than two years while his mother was still living. That'd be Eliza Thorpe, Eliza Thorpe Stead, was still living in Patterson during the same time, and they didn't know where, you know, it was, it was a class thing. He wasn't allowed to know where she lived, and she was told he had passed away. And that's something. Oh, my God. What a shock it must have been when he first, you know, saw his mother. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's funny because the way he tells it, you know, he just says, uh, she says, you know, well, you're, you know, you're my, my boy, and he says, damned if I ain't. Uh, it doesn't sound like, and of course this is over the years, he tells it, but it doesn't sound like they said, oh my God, you know? Yeah, right. And that's kind of a stead thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. They don't go there. <laughs> no, no, they're not too uh, emotional about stuff. <laughs> and that's so I can kind of see them being kind of like taking it a little bit for granted, like you showed up again, I'll be darned, you know? Yeah. How old was he then? Well, I think he was eight when uh, Alanson... That would have been his father. My great-grandfather left. And it would have been around 11 when, uh, when he reconnects with Eliza, Eliza Thorpe. Uh, that would be my great-grandma. Right. And, and Patterson back then was a, actually a big manufacturing town. Oh, yeah. It was a very active town. And, you know, I, I asked him, or I asked my Uncle Mal, actually, who recounted the story for me as well, was, were there other kids there in the orphanage that weren't, true orphans, but just kids whose parents couldn't afford. And Mal said that the, that was true in those years. An orphanage was sort of sometimes akin to uh, a poorhouse, like in, in the Dickensian fashion in England, wow. where if you just didn't have money, you put your kids there if you could get them there. They had room for them. Wow. I would imagine that probably was a normal practice because people were working absolutely unlimited hours at times you know this is before any regulations or osha or anything else sure and uh, so the kids had to be cared for and made sure that they they uh, had some sustenance some food to eat and uh and i guess those orphanages would step up in situations like that sure and kids worked too remember there was no child labor exemption and uh 
children were exploited to a great degree. When they got back to, to uh, Ramapo, she uh, worked for the land company, uh, but he also got a job in the land company. He was 11. Wow. And, and he worked in the land company. And he described some of those things. And uh, my dad remembered those descriptions better than I did. But my dad remembered one of the jobs that he had. It, they made wheels. Uh, Ramapo Ironworks made these wheels for train cars. Big, heavy iron. You can imagine how big yeah, those things are. Huge. And my dad said that one of the jobs that he had as a kid, mind you, was in the shop, once the wheel, after it was the iron is poured into the sand mold and it cools off and the wheel can be lifted up, the men would get the wheel moving, just sort of roll it along, and the kids, one of their jobs was to have pipes and run alongside the wheel on both sides, sort of like that hoop game that kids used to play to keep the thing rolling, and they would roll it, banging it with their little pipes, all the way down the yard to the place where the wheels were then dropped. And if they got good at it, they could just turn it around and it would drop in place. But th this was a risky thing. The, the, the wheel, you know, it's big, heavy iron thing. And a couple of his friends lost toes because the wheel would roll over their feet. And that was considered, you know, well, that's work. You yeah. Know? What that, are you going to do? That's yeah. a, you know, that's a, if you want to work here, you're going to have to yeah. sustain some, some losses from time to time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. What a different world. Yeah. Yeah. What a completely different world. Yeah. Do you, do you think that that influence on, on your grandfather, do you think that he then passed that along down to Mal and Walt and everyone else? Uh, oh, I think so. I think they, I think so. They actually, as young men, also worked at the ironworks. Uh, didn't have that kind of a job, but they had uh, similar, you know, tough jobs. They liked working at the ironworks, actually, and because um, it was regular labor. And remember, Hilburn was a factory village. It was literally built where it was. The original 17 houses were built there to help facilitate the, the working class that would then work in, in the shops at the ironworks. So there was that connection. So they were all sort of loyal to it. And a man named W.W. Snow, who designed Hilburn and, and, and built the original part of the village around the pond, the first uh, five streets or so, five or six streets, he, um, he was a, a, a major part of revitalizing the kind of work the Ironworks did, moving it from the Pearson Brothers stage in the early 19th century to this more of a manufacturing stage in the latter part of the 19th century. And so it went through the sort of second generation of life, and that moved right into the first few decades of the 20th century. And then, you know, it started to peter out and, and so forth. But it was, there was a, a sensibility around working in a manufacturing uh, place. And there, there wasn't a lot of discrimination there. There are, there are photographs of the workers, and there's all manner of people, like in the hamlet, in the hamlet of Ramapo, which was up by the original footprint of the ironworks, there were there were uh, Polish and Irish and Italian and uh, African American and Native American all living in that area, each in their own little enclave. But it's a community, and they all shared the, the little one-room schoolhouse. They shared the church, and because they all shared the functions of the ironworks. You know, I I this reminds me of. Um I think when I was about 19 years old, I got a job one summer at a factory in Closter, New Jersey. 
and it doesn't exist anymore, but it produced all manner of metal objects. Could be a, a metal faucet for the end of a, a garden hose, could be a, a pan, a pot, a, even a cup, something like that. And my job was to melt down the, these bricks of alloy, which were a mixture of lead and zinc and things like that in mm. this huge furnace, mm. and then take a ladle and literally take a ladle of liquid metal and pour it into these forms. Wow. And it was hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, summer was hot already, and I walked into this place next to this huge blast furnace, and it was just, I, it had to be like 120 degrees. And, you know, you're just sweating and sweating. And, you know, when the when the foreman brought me in, he said, now you keep drinking water. You drink water <laughs> every every minute you take a sip of water. Hydrate, hydrate. Yeah, you know, it was really, really important. And I'm thinking, oh, come on, how important could that be? You know, I can do this or whatever. You know, you're, you're young, you think you're going to live forever and you can do anything. And so I would take the ladle and I was trying to do everything right, and I, I wanted to make sure I melted it right and everything. And of course, while I'm doing that, the form that is standing next to the furnace is getting colder and colder. Yeah. And I pour the liquid metal in it, and it sputters and splashes, and boom. Oh, my you know, God. All back, burns holes right through my shirt and oh everything. Oh, my God. And uh, <laughs> that was my, my opening experience to work. And, and it took me, oh, I don't know, maybe one or two days to realize that this was not the kind of work that I, I could do for the rest of the summer. <laughs> two days. Wow. Yeah. You lasted a long time. <laughs> two whole days. You bet. Yeah. No, I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Well, well, my uncle Mal told me that, uh, Popstead saw a friend of his, there was a, a, um, like an urn that split like a big, um, like a crock that split and some hot metal sp uh, splashed out onto the foundry floor. And, uh, he saw a friend of his, jump through it like thought he could run over it and burn his feet up yeah his shoes and everything just burnt oh it's dangerous yeah. stuff and yeah. it will burn right through just about anything it's lava that it's, it's like mag magma you know it really it's just, is. yeah wow wow yeah. it was really something so you know i was supposed to wear this like big leather thing and again <laughs> you know you think you know everything i'm not gonna wear that yeah you don't know anything at i don't all. look good in that Oh, man. I just didn't want to be hotter. It turned right. out I got a whole lot hotter. Right, right, right. What are you going to do? Well, that was really fun. That was interesting. And we get to know your your uh, grandfather a little bit more. Uh, and we're finding out that he's got this cursed arm. Now, that, is this the same arm uh, the missing at fingers. the end of which is yep. the two missing fingers? We haven't figured out how that happened yet, though. Um, um, no, I haven't. I have. I wonder if I reveal it in the stories. I, I won't tell you yet. Not in that one. Yeah. I won't tell you yet. And if I don't reveal it, I'll tell you when we when we talk. Yeah. But he had this thing where when he waved at people, he liked them to hold down their fingers. Huh. And uh, and because he said, you know, you sh you shouldn't give me a full hand of fingers. I can't. I can't. I don't got a full hand of fingers. And he'd hold them down. And of course, you know. But that's for a later story. That that whole little. I just realized I do tell that in a later story. So and I won't give it away. Right we'll now. hold that up. That's a little <laughs> reference to sign language that we'll hold up that he was sensitive to. This was fun. Yep, this was good. Okay, well, uh, again, uh, thanks for tuning in. And our next story is called Hyo Silver, and we'll see you then. You've been listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. 
The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning at 9 a.m., so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story.